This is Think Digital Futures. My name is Shane Anderson, and this episode is about China. Recently, China has been getting a lot of attention for its implementation of surveillance technology, particularly surrounding one thing: a burgeoning social credit system, known as Jumma or Sesame Credit. It's an initiative of Tencent and Alibaba, companies that run the social media platforms, alongside the CCP. Basically, the system is designed to gamify your digital life. Have a listen. The system will take things into account, such as credit history, contract obligation fulfillment, personal characteristics, behavior and preferences, and interpersonal relationships to calculate a score. Once the system becomes mandatory, people with low scores could be punished with slower internet speeds, be denied access to certain restaurants, nightclubs, or golf courses, and restricted from traveling. Sesame Credit sounds scary, but it has been around for a few years already as an opt-in system. But earlier this year, Beijing announced it will be mandatory by 2020, and that's the same time it came to the West's attention. And we did not react well. Not to mention its striking similarity to an episode of sci-fi show Black Mirror, and it was enough to send conspiracy YouTubers into a tailspin. This episode, you're going to hear two perspectives on surveillance in China, all hinging on one huge question. Because when you couple things like the social credit system with a rise in AI and facial recognition tech, and a sharp increase in domestic security spending, has China suddenly become the kind of surveillance society Orwell could only dream of? No,、uh, the answer is no. Because if it's a surveillance state, it hasn't suddenly become a surveillance state, and there's a lot of surveillance going on, and it has been like that for a long time. This is Wanning Sun, professor of media communications at the University of Technology, Sydney. Wanning says all these changes didn't come from nowhere. I mentioned that Sesame Credit has already been around for a few years. Well, its original purpose was to address a shortfall in China's finance system. It started with this very acute appreciation of how inadequate the Chinese banking was. If you want to buy something expensive that costs a lot of money, you can't. For most of the majority of Chinese people, you can't just、uh, take the credit card out of your wallet and say, "Here it is," and pay for it. What they do, they have to actually physically carry wads of wads of cash. I have witnessed people doing that. So Sesame Credit is trying to modernize finances. Only unlike here, where your credit ranking is based only on your economic activities, Wenning says Sesame Credit is based off more established social ways of determining somebody's reliability. Socialist time, for instance, everybody or、uh, most people identify themselves as someone who works for a particular work unit, a workplace. So, if you actually want to borrow some money, you can borrow it from a friend, your colleague 
uh, your leader, your manager might actually feel obliged to lend you some money to tide you over. In those days, you don't borrow money from strangers. You borrow money from the people you work with, from your relatives. So we, we, we call that uh, a society of the familiar people, you know each other. So the trust operated according to the notion of knowing people already or guanxi. You know that we already have the connection, which a lot of Westerners know. Chinese culture and societies, you know, based on this notion of guanxi, there's connections and network. Is it so simple as saying that the social credit system is just a, a digital form of guangxi? No, I think actually for the people who are trying to promote this this uh, system, uh, their justification is that uh, it is empowering individuals who do not have a lot of social capital, such as Guanxi, or do not have good connection with the people in power. You know, usually they may be the people who may be prepared to work very hard or study very hard, but due to the lack of social capital cannot get ahead in society. Whereas this one, they call this, uh, you know, it's a kind of more modern, it's more egalitarian, and it allows people to excel on the basis of meritocracy. So even you, you don't uh, come from, you know, a very privileged families and you cannot be blessed with all these nepotistic practices and you're, you know, you don't have a, a large guanxi network. And if you behave well, if you do well, you can still, you know, you know do better than others and you get rewarded for that. So I think you could actually see uh, the introduction of the credit system, a new form of social engineering, a new form of uh, control, if you like, but in a sense that uh, it's kind of getting the individuals to motivate themselves to become better citizens, so to speak. Uh, Not necessarily because uh, the government tells them to do, but because if they actually become better citizens and have higher scores in terms of ranking, then they are rewarded. They get ahead in society. They are rewarded as a consumer in, in, in many other ways. So there is this ideology, I guess, behind who is a, a good citizen mm-hmm. and who is a bad citizen. So could we unpack that? Who gets a higher rating? Well, that is the bit that actually I find that is quite a, um, still quite a hazy area. You know, I, I guess it's not this very uh, dissimilar to what's happening here, like your database, your data with Centrelink is connected with your information in, at the tax office. I have asked p- people all the times as to how safe it is and whether they're worried about privacy. I have to say, maybe this is my own judgment. Uh, I think people like the convenience. I, again, I would say that the I have worked with China's rural migrant workers. That's part of my ongoing research. They don't seem to worry too much about privacy concern. They are, in fact, seeing the possibility of what they call uh, micro-commerce. So they're using this to sell products. They would actually, you know, go and visit the village homes during the Chinese New Year and come back with a whole lot of agricultural produce, whether it's peanuts or uh, dried dates or something. And they would put on a WeChat and say, I'm selling this. Anybody who wants to buy it, let me know. And they see possibilities. So I think the digital working class probably more interested in exploring the possibility, whereas I think the middle class tend to worry about the implications of, of other things, surveillances and privacies, digital rights, if you like. There is something almost Foucauldian about the Absolutely. self-surveillance. Yes. 
Yeah, well, Foucault wrote the, the Panopticon and all that kind of uh, how the control works, I think even before the internet. But I think this datafication is just making it uh, even easier to do that. It is uh, how neoliberal government uh, governance works. It works by people internalizing the uh, the expectations, the needs, and the values, and they make that kind of values their own, and they reflect that in their actual practice. So you know, as a result of that, it's probably a lot more clever. It works a, a lot better than the kind of top-down coercive kind of control. We see that everywhere and uh, China is not exception. But at the same time it's not that the state has retreated not at all. Some scholars call it just a kind of socialist rule with a neoliberal logic. So I don't think it suddenly become a surveillance state and I think the whole practice of surveillance has become an issue across the globe in, in most nation states. Yet all you seem to be hearing from China is news about growing surveillance and retreating privacy. And I also uh, happen to believe that uh, even though they are covering uh, and talk, telling the story that happened in China, I somehow, somewhat sort of suspect whether they are actually projecting their own anxiety about what's happening uh, close at home. And so putting this kind of anxiety about having their privacy invaded by big corporations and then combine that with their and, and, you know, fear and uh, sort of worry about the, the Chinese state, I think you have a perfect storm. So that kind of stories will go down really well. Do you think the fear is justified, though? Of course, I think that anxiety from their point of view is quite understandable. I've, uh, however, talked to some of the uh, scholars in China, and they, uh, they're not alarmed. The, the reason they're not alarmed is because they think that, um, A, they think uh, there is quite a high level of surveillance of, of the Chinese state anyway, and uh, everybody knows that and everybody expects that, and they really don't know or they haven't seen evidence yet that this this whole discussion about the introduction of the social credit ranking is going to make too much difference to it. Uh, as one of the professors um, based in Beijing, when I asked him, what do you think? He said, uh, uh, nobody cares. And I thought, are you a bit, are you sure? And he said, you know, what about control of the individual's behavior and, uh, you know, and particularly particularly political dissidents, and he said, oh, they're already controlled anyway. As for how effective Sesame Credit will be when it rolls out in 2020, Wenning says the devil is in the details we don't know yet. Particularly in terms of how is it going to work out. Yeah, but I guess that's the criticisms leveled at all kind of government and corporate level algorithms is that you don't really find out. Which is kind of ironic because uh, I thought one of the justifications for introducing this is, is to introduce transparency and accountability. So we need to know what kind of benchmarks are being used and what criteria are being deployed and to what end and for what purposes, to what extent is it actually going to be also effective or used in the legal and political domains. That was Wanning's son, Professor of Media and Communications at the University of Technology, Sydney. After the break, we're going to head out west to Xinjiang province 
to hear a different side to the surveillance story. Welcome back to Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson, and this episode, we're exploring the state of surveillance technology in China. Most people in China don't seem too worried at the thought of a social credit system, or Sesame Credit, linking your online activities to a trustworthiness rating. But this changes the further out west you go. My name is Josh Chin, and I'm a politics reporter for The Wall Street Journal based in Beijing. And how long have you been in Beijing for? So I've been in Beijing for for altogether a little more than more than 10 years. There's always been a lot of surveillance in China, particularly online, but also on the streets. I mean, there's always been a lot of surveillance cameras and there's always been a sense that, that, that the government is kind of watching. I think what's changed and I think what people are referring to is that the, the technology itself is getting better, partly because of AI. And, and China is sort of leading, not necessarily the science of AI. The U.S. The US is probably still more advanced in terms of like you know, artificial intelligence theory. But China is very uh, ahead of probably anyone else in actually using AI. And it's not clear exactly how much it's being used, but certainly there are police departments across the country who, who are at least experimenting with it. And then, you know, in certain areas of the country, it is definitely actively being used. One of those places is Xinjiang, an autonomous region in the northwest of China, which just this year saw a 92% increase in domestic security spending. It's a region with a long history of tensions between the Uyghur Muslim population and the Han Chinese. These tensions came to a head in the early 1990s after an independence movement swept through the region. And those tensions have sort of been continuously on a a sort of uh, low boil since then, and occasionally they've sort of boiled over into into pretty, pretty bad violence. In recent years, the Chinese government has sort of identified Islamic extremism as the cause of this. So they've really gone after religion and sort of made it very difficult for, for Uyghurs to practice Islam. Um, you know, banned long beards for young men and, and, and certain forms of headscarves for women. And so that's, and that's only increased the tension. So this system is the kind of latest surveillance network that they're rolling out, you know, alongside huge, vast numbers of police is the sort of is the latest effort by the Communist Party to crush the separatist movement. Tell me a little bit about Xinjiang. So you went there last year? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so uh, a colleague of mine and I, Clement uh, Burge is my colleague who does video. We went together to Xinjiang twice last year. Our goal was just to sort of see what was what was happening there. What were you expecting the first time? It's hard to know what to expect. I mean, because we'd heard a lot of stories, foreign reporters had come back and they all seemed kind of shocked by what they'd seen. So we knew it was going to be unusual, but we didn't know exactly how. And so what we did was essentially was we rented a car uh, and drove into Xinjiang. And right at the border, there was a, a huge police checkpoint with, with facial recognition scanners, you know, and tons of police, armored cars and that sort of thing. And so and from that point on, you know, we just sort of experienced that over and over again. What were all those checkpoints for? Were they trying to stop you? So they, it was interesting. They, you know, they didn't stop us from reporting and they generally let us go. Their, their target is, is Uyghurs uh, and other sort of uh, non-Han Chinese people. Part of the issue is it's not just surveillance. Uh, I mean, they sort of there's this combination of, of human 
you know, the sort of human security net with with the digital security. Uh, so there are police cars and policemen everywhere in, in the major cities and sirens constantly going off. And it is quite um, nerve wracking uh, to, to sort of be in that environment. Um, where it's everywhere you look, there are policemen. Literally, it, you know, in, in, in a city, it is almost impossible to look anywhere and not see police. I think actually Xinjiang is a is a laboratory for you know this, this cutting edge surveillance technology. But this, the main surveillance force and security force in Xinjiang, as of the rest of China, are human human policemen, uh, and they they you know they sort of do house visits and they go to everyone's houses and they're, and they're uh, on a regular basis or Uyghur's houses on a regular basis and they're on those sidewalks watching and they're in checkpoints and they're driving around in police cars. Um, so we haven't gotten to the point in Xinjiang where the digital surveillance is good enough or pervasive enough, pervasive enough to uh, replace the human. Yeah. What, what, what were some of the other forms of digital surveillance that you came across? Right. So, so the, so the facial recognition is kind of everywhere. That's the most common in any major venue you're going into. It's like a big hotel or a, a big shopping mall or train station, airport, anything like that. Most of almost all of those have metal detectors with also then security gates where you have to swipe your ID card and it scans your face to match, match your face with your ID card. There's also a lot of police walking around with devices that could scan f- smartphones. Uh, so they would sort of randomly check pedestrians. We saw this in, in, in Urumqi in the capital where there the were police that sat, sat at a table sort of near the main university, Xinjiang University, and they would just randomly grab people who were walking by and, and, and take their phones and plug it into this device, which, which scans their phones looking for digital contraband, basically. And then we in, in the city called Aksu in southern Xinjiang, we found uh, knife shops that were basically carving QR codes, these sort of like square kind of like they look like a barcode, but they're but they're two dimensional uh, into knives. And then and the QR codes had information coded in them for so the owner of the knife, you know, their, their name, their phone number, their ID number and their address. Uh, and the rule in Aksu was that every knife had to have one of these codes printed on them so that they could be traced in the event they were used for for a crime. But yeah, what do the Uyghur think of all this? Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit difficult and, and, and somewhat dangerous to talk to Uyghurs uh, about this in inside Xinjiang. Um, just, you know, there's this fear, which I think is justified uh, amongst many foreign reporters that just by associating with Uyghurs, you've been talking with some Uyghurs, you, you could potentially get them into trouble. But we, we did manage to talk to a few, and there are some Uyghurs who really, who do, who do just, who wanted to talk and about the situation. And, and you know, it's they described it as a as a as feeling like they're in an open air prison. We talked to one guy who, who who was willing to speak on the record, and he had a few run ins with the police here and there, and was on a blacklist and said he couldn't travel. He lived in a room and he couldn't travel to uh, see his, his new wife's family in another town because every time he scanned his ID card at a bus station, like an alarm would go off, and they would deny they would deny him access. Uh, and so he said he was basically kind of stuck in his in his neighborhood. Yeah, I'm I'm amazed given all this fear and surveillance, the access that you as a journalist actually had. Right. So that was that was really surprising to us as well, uh, again, because we didn't know what we were going to encounter. And so we just drove in and, you know, at various checkpoints, we would say when we were honest about who we were 
you know, basically what we said was we're here to report on Xinjiang's development. We kind of we sort of deliberately kept it vague. Uh, but um, but we you know we 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 assumed that once people figured out that we were journalists that they would detain us. For the most part, that wasn't the case. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess there's a gap between how effective the tech is versus how effective the idea of surveillance is. Yeah, I think that's true. But you know, the interesting thing is, is I think that they only really, um, I think the system is very effective in some ways, regardless of how good the tech is, because people in Xinjiang are so paranoid about the surveillance. And then sometimes they sort of ascribe abilities to the surveillance system that it doesn't have at all. You know, there was one, one Uyghur in exile who we interviewed said, you know, his wife believed that everything they said in their house was, was being recorded because, you know, each house has, has another, has a QR code on a, on a placard mounted near, near their door. And that's for police when they do their inspections, they can come by and scan that code and get all the information for who lives in the apartment. And she believed that that, that placard had listening abilities and, and was recording everything they said, which which seemed very unlikely, you know, but it just sort of goes to show that, that, you know, the imagination kind of does a lot of the work for the government. That was Josh Chin, politics reporter for The Wall Street Journal, based in Beijing. And this has been Think Digital Futures. This show was supported by the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Thanks to Wanning Sun and Josh Chin for this episode. Also thanks to Vincent Su for your assistance. You can find more information about the show at our website, which is www.2scr.com slash thinkdigitalfutures. Also, don't forget to subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. And while you're there, please leave a review. You heard music today by Loyalty Freak Music and Komiku, and the theme music is by Joe Koning. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>